When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. What was it, apart from being a neuroscientist, what was it that got you, Chris Nowinski, really interested in whole concussion discussion well, I used to let people hit me head with metal garbage cans. Like, I thought it was cool, and it was just part of the show. When you're older and you have some wisdom, you realize all that toughness stuff is bullshit because you're stuck in this broken body for the rest of your life. One of the biggest storylines, rugby league, right now is the controversy around head-high tackles. Probably just as important, concussion as a result of head-high tackles. Right now, NRL is in denial that repetitive head impacts cause CT. Right? They are telling not only their players and their coaches, but the public that what we know to be true is not true. We are at the point now where the science is so apparent. Denying that head impacts cause CT is like denying that smoking causes lung cancer. And I'm happy to walk them through it. And we offered to meet with them and they want to meet. You guys are tough. Like your sports are insanely dangerous and painful, right? Like, like you, you love getting hit more than we do. And, and you have such a high percentage of Australian men playing these sports. You need your brain. Like we don't want to destroy families in the future. We don't want to leave widows, you know, and, and, and fatherless children because we were tough in our 20s and 30s. Like, oh, what a prize that is if you're not there to raise your kids. Chris Nowinski, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Thanks for having me, Mark. Where are you physically now, right now? I am uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Well, great place. I went there to watch uh, and in a in a hotel. In a hotel. Yeah. Well, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm giving a yeah, and a concussion education talk to a professional wrestling company. It's funny. I uh, many years ago when I had a business called Wizard Home Loans many years ago, and uh, I was on the front of the Australian jersey that uh, the Australian team played in uh, Philadelphia, and we played against the USA Tomahawks. And uh, and I sponsored the game. I actually went over. I was in New York, so I, I took the train to to went to go and watch the game. And um, and two of our players, one of our players in that game, and I think it was about two thousand and around two thousand five or six. Um, one of our players actually got knocked out in that game against the Tomahawks, and uh, we, the Australian team, as you would expect, won the game. But and today's conversation is sort of around this topic because, you know, what happened 20 years ago is starting to bite us on the proverbial at the moment. I'm a director of a, a well-known rugby league football t- uh, team in, New- in Australia, uh, the Sydney Sydney Roosters, and uh, I take this whole topic of uh, CTE, concussion, 
just head eye tackling, I take this whole conversation really seriously, as does the rest of my board. And I know some people who are adversely affected as ex-rugby league players currently, one of which was part of a feature show only last weekend, the weekend before on one of our mainstream TV stations, Mario Fennec. And uh, he's a good friend of mine, Mario, and he's now been diagnosed with CTE and he's been struggling for some time with that. And you're a neuroscientist, but you have, uh, so you have the technical side, but you also have um, experience as a, ex-football player in the US, what we call football player or NFL player, and also a wrestler, professional wrestler. And uh, so I, I guess that's why this topic's really fascinating to me and, uh, and I feel privileged to have the opportunity to talk to someone like you and I'm really happy that Wayne Pierce introduced us, a um, good mate of mine. And um, so I, I, I guess I would like to just to ask you straight up, what was it? Apart from being a neuroscientist, what was it that got you, Chris Nowinski, really interested in the whole concussion discussion and all the consequential things that happen after concussion? Yeah, because I got kicked in the head too much. So I was just downstairs having dinner and I ran into a few of the wrestling fans out there. Jim Ross. Jim Ross is the play-by-play guy for WWE, now AEW. You know, famous voice. Uh, And he... uh, he hired me at WWE, you know, so to be, he, he thought it'd be the, he told me you were the future. You had it all. And I got too many concussions back in 2003 and had to retire. I had uh, per, basically permanent post-concussion syndrome. What is that? 15 years of headaches. I developed a sleep. So basically like, you know, f- for the first 19 years, I got banged in the head playing sports. Every time I got a concussion, a, I didn't realize it was a concussion. So you'd, you know, blackout, sky would change colors. You forget where you were for a minute. I never mentioned it. So I kept playing. And then all the previous concussions, so not even registering and I was fine. And then this last one, partially because it was two a month apart, um, it just stuck with me forever. Like just, you know, you just get too many concussions and you get permanent symptoms. And so that's what I went through. And it was, I was a mess. Um, and I'm actually feeling better now, 19 years later than I, than I have since that hit. Um, so, uh, but, but I got interested in concussions because WD was trying to get me better. I was going to every doctor in the country. No one could sort of put me back together. No one could make my headaches go away. No one could make it. So when I worked out, I didn't get nauseous. And no one could fix the fact that I'd wake up and act out my dreams and hurt myself and, and, and sometimes other people. And so um, I started researching all the literature on concussions. I used to go to the Harvard Medical School Library. I read everything because um, I'd done some healthcare consulting and I knew the literature. And I was like, oh, my God, like the story I believed about concussions that like, you know, you had to be knocked out. And as long as you woke up, you were fine was was not true. We've known for 100 years that concussions can have real serious problems. They can destroy lives, um, that we need to rest brains after you get them. But sports wasn't doing that. And that, and I lost my brain health because of my own ignorance and because sports didn't prioritize concussions. And I sort of decided at that point, I should try to do something to change that. So it started with a, a book I wrote in 2006 called Head Games Football's Concussion Crisis. And when no one really wanted to listen to it, I, I, I ended up, I mean, we can get in, I ended up 
conducting outreach to families for brain donation so that we could actually prove there was a problem because some of the, you basically can't see these problems on a scan. You have to look at the brain. And once that, once that started working and getting people to take this more seriously, I started the Concussion Legacy Foundation to start a brain bank and to go fight for changing how we do things. And that was 15 years ago. Five years into it, I decided to go back to school to get my PhD uh, because I wanted to make sure I was right about this. And I realized I was probably going to have to fight this battle for a long time. So you have a PhD in in the in neuroscience? Is, is that where you – how you become a neuro- – Behavioral neuroscience. And behavioral neuroscience, okay. So – when you do a PhD, um, there's lots of ways of doing it. But one of the one of the things you need to do is you need to do a literature literature review of all the stuff in relation to the thing that is going to form part of your thesis. Ultimately, I mean, there's lots of ways of doing PhDs, and you've got to get trained. I don't know if you went down the the uh, thesis path or whether you went down the publication path. Or I don't know, but what doesn't matter. But in your literature review, when you basically try to review every bit of literature in relation to your topic. Were you surprised that both rugby league, NFL, boxing, wrestling were conducting their sport without any reference to this literature? And why is there such a big gap between the administration and the literature? No, no. So that's just a question. So, um, so there's, we sort of early have to divide this conversation into two things. One is the concussion conversation. And one is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, right. CTE, what, what Mario Fennec is dealing with. So the concu- the, I originally focused on the concussion problem. And so you will go back and find there's a 100-year-old debate about resting concussions. So the, the uh, ar- Army in the U.S., Army the, as a football team, the, the university that trains our Army guys, and their coach have wrote a book in the – 1910 saying, I don't know what's wrong with all those other coaches. You should never allow a guy to go back in with a concussion. And that you find in the literature that every 10 years or 20 years that popped up as a debate. And the ones who always won were the ones who said, ah, put them back in. They're fine. No one's dying. It's fine. And the problem, the problem was we weren't looking long-term to see what happened to those people. Now we know the more concussions you get, the worse off you are, the more symptoms you have. And that it's just not, the human brain needs time to recover. But basically, if you want to be a doctor in sports, you tell them, go do whatever you want. And they had the power, right? right? So you basically have doctors doing bad things, I think, in that world. But also the NFL was actively covering it up. So in the early 1990s, a bunch of famous quarterbacks in the NFL retired from concussions. Troy Aikman and Steve Young being the two names that people might know. And that started the debate on concussions. The NFL then went and hired a bunch of concussions. They put a non-neuroscientist in charge of them, a rheumatologist, which is not meant to, has no idea about brains. And they conducted, they sort of did what Big Tobacco did, where they designed studies that could only find one conclusion. And then they publicized that conclusion and said, everything's fine. What we do is fine. And that's where I sort of stepped in and said, actually, no, I can, even I can figure out these publications are ridiculous. And we finally got that exposed. So on the concussion side, you're basically talking about, you know, a debate that they don't have perfect evidence for that the people who told sports what they wanted to hear won. And then on the CTE side, the problem was it was well known in boxing by the 1920s. 
And I now show videos in my lectures of comedians in the 1950s making fun of punch drunk boxers. Like everybody knew it. No one ever looked in any other sports. People just didn't think, okay, getting hit in the head a thousand times, you know, as a boxer is very similar to the brain of getting tackled a thousand times and getting hit in the head or hitting your head on the ground. And so there was no incentive to look, no one bothered to look. And when ex-athletes ended up dying young and doing poorly, we had this sort of canned response of, oh, they missed the game. Oh, they're depressed because they're not famous anymore. Whatever. We just made up stories as to why they died. Now we know they're dying and having these issues like Mario because they had this disease. I might just wheel back a little bit. What is a concussion? So boxer, footy player, whatever it is, doesn't matter. But how does a a person know they've had a concussion? No, it's a fair question. And there's no, there's the funny thing is there's no black or white test for a concussion, right? So essentially a concussion is a change in how your brain functions. And that change in how your brain functions is mostly on a chemical and metabolic level. Essentially an a hit to your head causes uh, energy to go into your brain and causes neurons to malfunction. They become depolarized, neurotransmitters start flying all over the place, ions are all out of whack, and your brain starts malfunctioning. So you feel dizzy, confused, vision issues, you bring in your ears, uh, lethargic, uh, you know, you black out, you knock that, whatever it is, it's because your brain's temporarily malfunctioning. Right. And if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, if you got tackled by a bear, <laughs> You know, your brain would want to, it got hit, your brain would want to get, you know, be able to get up and run away as fast as can and then take time to recover. So that's how your brain responds is it tries to get you functioning to 90% of where you were as fast as possible. But what's happening inside your brain actually takes like a month to recover. You just think about this concussion as sort of a software issue mostly, you know, and you need, and your brain just needs time to recover. So let's say I'm in the boxing ring, um, I get knock. I get hit on the chin. Um, it's square. Um, my legs go on me. I fall on the ground. It's what's supposed to happen, is what you're saying, because you know that's my brain putting me in a position where I've got to try and recover, as opposed to. Well, yeah, your your, your brain got hit so hard that the part of your brain that controls your ability to stand up broke. Yeah. Right, and it's then quickly trying to regulate itself so you can get back up to survive. But that recovery, the damage is profound, and that for your brain to actually get back to normal, we know takes weeks, weeks. Well, in boxing, you can't if you get knocked out in boxing, you can't fight for three months. At least that's the rule. That's the global rule in the professional environment. Well, you're not supposed yeah. to fight for three months. Uh, so the difference there, the the insight to the boxing question, that's sort of what's coming. If you're knocked out, right? That might be a worse concussion than not being knocked out, but not always. The standing eight count yeah. is a built-in concussion recovery system, right? So if you get hit and the, the guy starts counting and you can't stand up right away, that's a concussion. And they're letting you keep boxing with a concussion. So this this line that knockout is is worse does not help us create a safe place. Right. So we, we should treat that, we, you know, yeah. So are you suggesting then – because I know the standing eight gets a lot of times it doesn't get used in the professional ranks, but it gets used definitely gets used in the in the amateur ranks. So if the referee thinks that you know you've been hit hard enough by your opponent, because it happened to me only a couple of years ago, um, 
they they stop the five and you they give you an eight count. You stand, you're still standing. They give you an eight count. They count count for eight seconds. But it's a bit of a, a bit silly when I think about it because how am I expecting my brain to recover in eight seconds? Um, they're just trying to see if yeah. they're trying to gauge, I guess, how badly you were hit or how badly your brain was affected. Well, it's it's a weird ethical line of like it's it's not fun for people to watch a guy keep getting punched in the head when he can't defend himself. Yeah. So they, you know, it, 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 the standing eight count was created for entertainment purposes, not for health purposes. Yeah, I get it. Right. They basically are saying you got stunned and if the guy keeps punching you now, it's over. But if you take 10 seconds to recover, you can get your fist back up and now we can keep going and keep people watching. Yeah. Like that's, that's why it exists. It's a bit of a nonsense in so some respects. So it is basically saying you got a concussion. We're going to let you recover for a few seconds so that the fight can go on. And, uh, it's funny you should say that the boxing industry worked out a long time ago about concussions um, and uh, no one actually – and they they wouldn't allow you to fight if you were actually knocked out, like on the ground, that is, as opposed to standing out, you're actually on the ground, you couldn't get up. You have to wait three months. That's certainly the rule as I know it. Um, uh, but you're saying that the football environments never worked that, that – never were able to translate that across to NFL or in our case in this country, rugby league – so that such that a person um, should sit out for three months. Because in Australia, if you're playing a game of rugby league, if you get knocked out, you've got to go to what they call the head bin for an assessment. That means you've got to go off the field and, uh, uh, you know, you've got to talk to a doctor and doctor does an assessment. By the way, it's not a biological assessment. It's not even really a medical assessment. It's about looking in your eyes, asking some questions. And uh, generally speaking, they, get, they don't go back on the field. But nine times out of ten, they play the next week. And uh, – you know, like, and we, especially if it's an important game, um, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think there should be? Do, do you think this, there should be greater rules around this? In other words, there's an automatic sit out for a month. So boxing allows you to sit out for three months when you're knocked out because no one's boxing every week. Yeah, no one should be. Yeah, right. And they know that. So like, there's no problem for the business to let people sit out for three months. Yeah, because there are people that do six prize fights in a year usually. So the problem is with rugby or AFL, you're playing weekly. And so that's why the, I mean, that's sort of why the a week is sort of the standard or a minimum six days to be out is because you can, so you can play that seventh day. So the, I mean, if you were trying to maximize brain health, you'd have everyone sit out at least a minimum of a month. But that, but if, if that was the case, people would start losing their jobs when they got concussions, right? Because the team needs, they'll be replaced. So then they'll realize if I tell someone I have a concussion, I might lose my job because I have to be out at least a month um, and they'll just hire someone else to take my job. And the problem is because we don't have a concussion test, we rely on self-report from athletes most of the time. So the concussions that you see someone get pulled off on, it's because their symptoms are so bad that they were showing external signs. They wobbled. They couldn't stand up. And that's like take that guy out every time. But 90% of concussions, only you're feeling right? You got hit and you have double vision, you're hit, you're in your, you, you sort of are a little spaced out. No one can tell that from the sideline. And the goal is, can we get players to tell us when that happens? Because the same things happen in their brain, they just can still stand. And if everybody, if we told everyone you have to sit out a month, every time you got stunned, uh, um, no one would ever tell us when they got hurt. And so there's a good argument for why you want to keep it flexible on how long people are out. And some people might be able to get back within two weeks. Um, but the majority of people should be out multiple weeks 
in months. It just having a hard and fast rule will prevent most people from reporting, especially because we don't educate players on how damaging it is to keep playing and how it could risk their career. Our education is so poor. Um, so they're all trying to hide their concussions. <laughs> yeah, that, that's crazy because if they knew the um, downside of hiding their concussions, what it'll, how it'll kick back into them when they're, turned, when they're older, <laughs> they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, take that risk. Just return from uh, to Florida from Sydney where you launched the Stop Hitting Children in the Head campaign, um, which seeks to exclude children under 14 from playing contact sports. Um, is there a greater danger of creating a problem for kids under the age of 14 or just younger kids or is the danger a greater danger when individuals are older, sportsmen, athletes are older? Yeah, so the, 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 this is focused on two things, concussions and CTE. On the concussion side, the research is becoming very clear that concussions make it so that you're more likely to develop new mental health disorders, psychiatric symptoms, depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, self-harm. All of that increases, a concussion can cause that. And especially concussions young to the developing brain. And so part of this is we shouldn't be giving kids concussions, right? If we have a choice. And sports where they collide cause more concussions than sports where they don't. But the, the it, it, part of this has really been driven by CTE. So we now know from studies of boxers, American football players, and ice hockey players, where we have numbers, that the number of times you're hitting the head and developing CT is a dose response relationship. The more hits you take, the greater your risk. And so we published a study in 2020 that showed that your odds of developing CT as an American football player went up uh, 30% per year, or it doubles every two and a half years you play the game. And so that's why when we study the brains of people when they die, if they played in the NFL, nearly all of them have it. And if we study the ones who just played through their teenage years, the majority don't have it. And it's just sort of a smooth curve in between. And so the question then becomes, okay, let's make some sensible choices. If we want to prevent athletes from developing CT, we have to hit them in the head fewer times. The easiest way to do that is to limit the number of years they're exposed to this problem. I mean, and actually the curves overlay smoking and lung cancer very clearly. So the problem is not that first cigarette you smoke. The problem is if you smoke two packs a day for 30 years, your risk gets very high. So if you take that same idea, can we take all these smokers or those players down to a shorter number of years of doing this bad, harmful thing? And so then the question becomes, well, where do you limit careers? You don't limit them when they're pros, when they're making money and they're adults and they can accept the risk. But let's look at kids younger than 14. If you hit them in the head too many times, they'll get a brain disease. Is that fair to the kids? No. Uh, is the reward of playing any sports before 14 worth the risk of a brain disease? Well, you, you know, you're not getting paid. You don't understand the risks. Why get exposed to this horrible thing that's killing people like Mario Fennec? So we just said, look, let's have a kid version of every sport that doesn't involve getting tackled or hitting soccer balls. And you will reduce CT cases going forward by an enormous percent. That's very interesting. I think what you're saying, and this is more a technical question, but the correlation between CTE and concussion that you've just talked about, it seems to be it's more a statistical correlation as opposed to a biological proof correlation um, as opposed to smoking. Smoking does cause... No, it's both. So the argument, yeah, it's both. On. Okay. 
Well, I mean, this, well, this is an important discussion for Australia because you guys are uh, have not been exposed to this conversation as long as we have. So you're at a different place in the evolution. So one one question that's important to get out there now is that the, the correlation between concussions and CT is not what we thought it was. So your risk of CT has nothing to do with how many concussions you have. Right. We cannot find that correlation in the data. And that is because CTE is caused by hard hits and your brain twisting. Your brain does not like to rotate. If you twist a brain the way it's shaped, all the energy goes, the surface of your brain, the cortex, has hills and valleys. You see these little lines when you look at a brain. That's because your evolution jammed your brain into your skull, and the way to create more cortex was to have to go up and down. And so all the energy goes to the bottom of those valleys, of the hills and valleys. So that's, and, and, and that happens when your brain twists. So that, and that's a causal mechanism. So all the energy goes to the bottom of the valleys and that spreads. When you are a rugby player, if you took a thousand hits to the head in one season and you had one concussion, that concussion's average percentile of the thousand hits is somewhere around 90%. It's not the hardest hit you took. So of those thousand hits, you took a hundred hits harder than the concussion. That's probably where the CT risk is coming from. Right. Those hundred hits for every one concussion you have, because there's not a good correlation between brain damage and symptoms. Microscopic brain damage and symptoms are not one to one. Right. So that so the enemy is hits to the head. We published a paper, including uh, with authors um, in in Australia, reviewing the world's literature through something called the Bradford Hill criteria, was created by the person who figured out smoking caused lung cancer in 1950. And he became the world's expert in figuring out how do you study whether an environmental exposure causes a disease. And he created nine categories through which you analyze the, the literature. We, we analyzed literature through this. And it, what we showed is that there is zero doubt out there based on what we've seen that head impacts are not causing CTP. So there is a, from, from the biological sense, we actually... If you look at the nine categories, includes strength of association, um, includes things like um, consistency. So now we've seen this in nine countries and in researchers around the world and in a dozen sports. It includes things like as, um, that, that dose response I talked about. That was just one of the nine categories. So we both see that correlation statistically and all the evidence suggests causation. We see it in animals. We see CTE in muskox who bang heads. Right. That makes sense. Because they have brains shaped like ours. So so if you're listening, you should have, I mean, even though you, I will tell you, the AFL, co, or the, sorry, the Australian codes have been misleading the public about causation. And Paul McCrory has been sort of the, the face of that, who was the head doctor for AFL for a while. They have been misleading you. The, the causation evidence and they should, you should read the paper in Frontiers in Neurology, um, is black and white. Um, but again, that conversation is not happening in Australia because the codes have been telling people, you know, for example, just to give you an example, the, the NRL funded a scientist to study this who said a few months back, we won't be able to figure out for a generation or two whether or not head impacts cause CTE. That is a scientifically preposterous statement, right? You don't know, no disease in the history of time have we waited generations. You study the evidence you have 
and you make a call. That's why we know sunburns cause skin cancer. We didn't start sunburning kids at five and then wait till they died to conclude sunburns cause skin cancer. There's scientific methods to, to use this. And we applied the best known scientific method to prove causation. And it's proven. And of course, it makes sense. Like we all accept boxers become punch drunk. Why the heck wouldn't we think that rugby players who took 10,000 hits wouldn't become punch drunk too? I have a a friend, um, a good friend. Um, it's not Jeff Enick. Jeff is a friend of mine but Jeff, as a boxer, but I have a good friend who was at the age of uh, 30 years of age, he was the world um, featherweight champion at the time. And uh, But, you know, between the age of taking up boxing when he was a young young teenager to that point, he'd been hit a lot. And um, when he turned 30, he went to uh, – I won't say where he went to because I don't want to – he went to it to defend his title anyway, and uh, and I'm not saying whether he's Australian or not Australian, by the way, because I don't want to pinpoint the individual. But he got hit in the first round. It didn't look like a big hit. It just hit him on the chin, and he just dropped to his feet. Like he just just dropped. His feet just went from me. He was knocked out straight away. He lost his title. Never fought again. Um, and when I spoke to him a little while later. He told me this, and I don't know if it's true or not, but he said to me this, as he understood it, as a young man when you're 20, you have fluid between your brain and your skull. And then when you get hit, you talk you talk about energy and I, most of us don't really know what you're talking about. But when when I get hit on the chin, when I'm a young man, the fluid between my brain and my skull actually sort of cushions my skull from hitting my brain. Uh uh, yeah, that's right, and therefore damaging my brain. Uh, just bear with me for a second. But as I get older, sure. I produce less of this fluid, but particularly if I'm trying to strip weight to make the weight division, I generally speaking, in those days in particular, I generally speaking stop drinking water so I can make weight. Um, they usually um, soak themselves with the water for about, about seven days out drink three to four litres of water a day, seven days out before the weigh-in and then three days, then they stop drinking water altogether and something happens. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...metabolically in their system and they just expel all the water and every other, the water they've, they've been drinking for the three days before, but plus every other bit of water in the system. And apparently, this is what I heard, is that one of the places that you expel when you lose water, the fluid reduces is around your brain. 
And when you then try to, when you make weight, then you try to rehydrate because you got 20, you weigh in the day before and you got to rehydrate overnight. You try to rehydrate. A lot of them go on the drips and they, you know, get drip rehydration. But the last place to rehydrate, apparently, this is what he was telling me, is your brain. And as a result of that, he said to me, he was too old to be doing stripping weight through water, through dehydration. Is there any science around making sure that they keep a lot of fluid in their system to help protect their brain? Is there something around that? Unfortunately, it's a myth. Right. Um, there's no change. There's no known change in the amount of fluid, cerebral spinal fluid around your brain by age. Um, dehydration will certainly affect your performance. Um, but if you think about it, like you, if your body only had so much liquid, if you were dehydrated, then the place they're going to pull it from is not the fluid surrounding your brain and keeping your brain functioning normally, right? Your brain is your most important part of your body for your life. So the people have, I mean, that has been brought up many times over the years and it's, and, and people have tried to study it as best they can. And there's just, there's just no, no evidence that that's true. I mean, the, 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 what, what is true is that when your friend got hit in the jaw, that when you get hit in the jaw, that causes your head to twist. And that's that rotational acceleration. And again, that's what causes your brain to pull apart from itself and causes axonal damage that would, um, there's lots of theories as to why you get knocked unconscious. There's something called the reticular activating system in the brainstem. Um, that we can, when that malfunctions, it's what keeps you awake. And basically the idea is your head got hit so hard that your brainstem twisted and caused uh, malfunctioning and maybe physical injury, but definitely malfunctioning of the brain in the area that keeps you awake, which is, you know, again, one of the most important areas. Is there any sense in the, uh, the again, it's probably a myth, but is there any sense in the more times I get hit, the more sensitive I am to being knocked out. Completely true. And I was just having that conversation at, at dinner downstairs. We don't know why that's true. It could be a sense that it, it could. So this, this, what they call the neurometabolic cascade of concussion, this chemical and metabolic changes, it could take lower and lower thresholds to do that. Or you've caused physical damage to your brain that's microscopic and the compensatory mechanism through which like if you get hit and you know, you got 86 billion neurons, let's say millions of them get taken offline or damaged. You know, the first time that happens, you still got a ton of neurons there to help you out. But the second time that happens, you've got fewer, like the neurons don't come back. The connections between the healthy neurons can grow back, your dendritic connections, but not the actual neurons themselves if they get killed. So you, you sort of run out of your ability to compensate for the brain damage you're getting. And so it takes you longer to recover each time and you have more symptoms each time. And that, that's what I went through. And that's what a lot of the, you know, I'm in this hotel with a lot of professional wrestlers and some of them have been through this. Like they're well-known cases that by the end of their career, you just have to tap them in the head. They have symptoms and it takes forever to recover. That's and they, Yeah. And, it, and we, but we just don't have the science worked out. What about the whole story then about, you know, I don't know, I only know it as plasticity of the brain, but our ability to regenerate, you said the dendrites can reconnect if they've got the neurons in existence because they hang off the neurons. But I think you also said that we can't create new neurons if they've died off. Is that is that correct? We, well, there's a little bit of neurogenesis, but like those of us who get hit in the head shouldn't bank on, we're going to get enough new neurons created to cover up the damage we can do. Usually the damage exceeds anything that the brain can recreate. Okay. So 
if that's the case, then, I mean, I, I don't know, but like surely there should be, in Australia at least, we should be paying much, from what you've said, we should be paying much more attention not to the transactional knockouts that any one individual gets, but maybe the series of <laughs> transactions that they've got in relation to their knockouts or their head hits, they're getting hit in the head, in particularly in rugby league, over a period of time. And there should be a point at which, I mean, there's no point being prescriptive, but there should be a point at which you always say, that's it, we're, we're not going to sponsor you to play rugby league anymore because you've just been hit too many times, as opposed to going to a doctor and getting a doctor to sign off on it. Uh, well, so th- that would be arbitrary. And and the problem is, again, because most concussions aren't diagnosed. And when I say most concussions aren't diagnosed, we did a, our colleagues of mine did a survey of college football players, you know, tw- 20 years old. Um, and they surveyed them after a season in which they were given preseason education on concussions are bad for you. Tell us every time it happens. For every one concussion they had, they admitted to lying and covering up six. Wow. And then they also had an additional 20 dings or bell ringers that they didn't even consider concussions, those times you're stunned. So basically, effectively, and those are concussions. So one out of every 28 times they were hit in the head wow. and had symptoms that they tell anyone. And they didn't even tell them. Some of them, they were just, I know. So if you punish the people who tell you they have a concussion because they're trying to do the right thing, no one will ever tell you they have a concussion again. So you can't create numerical guidelines on this. You have to send the doctors and have the doctors try to figure out whether or not you should retire. But the doctors have very little go on. And they also might be aware in the back of their mind that if they start retiring guys who someone else might clear, no one's going to send them players anymore. So it's very hard to get a straight answer when you're an active player about when to retire. But but the one you know piece of information that's probably useful is that I'm fascinated by the fact that in Australia, you still have professional athletes who get diagnosed with three concussions in one season. Because we've now moved to a place in the U.S. that once you have two concussions in a season, it's very unlikely they're going to put you back in that season. Because they know that you could have a third very easily, and that third could be, lead to permanent symptoms and ruin your career. And we only know that partially because people are starting to be honest about the fact that the symptoms never go away after a third of the season, like a third, three concussions in six months is extraordinary. And very few brains can handle that. Very few people complain about it because again, it will ruin their career and they hope to just recover in the off season, but you will not find American athletes in professional sports with three concussions diagnosed in the same season because they don't get the opportunity to get the third. But I know that that's still happening in Australia and and that's going to, change as people start to learn more. So just on CTE, I mean, I saw the neurologist on that show recently from Macquarie uh, University. Uh, her name was Rowena. Um, Rowena Mobs. Yeah, Dr. Rowena Mobs um, showed a an image, an MRI image of Mario's brain. The way she sort of explained it was that it was shrinking the brain itself was getting yeah. smaller, and uh, the and you could see sort of a gap between the the skull and the brain. The brain it looked like it was getting smaller. Is that the death of the neurons? Is that what we're talking about here, or is there a particular part of the brain that dies off? I mean, what is going on there? Yeah. So yes, that's called atrophy. So basically, cells are dying and and getting sort of uh, dismissed from the brain through the cerebral spinal fluid. There, it's sort of like. Guard, you know, dead parts of the brain taken out of the brain. 
So he's got fewer neurons and, and so, so many fewer neurons that his, the volume of his brain is much smaller. And he's got, and it gets filled by fluid when his brain shrinks, you see more that black area, which is just fluid. Um, and CTE is, so with Alzheimer's disease, which more people are familiar with, that atrophy first starts happening, what's called the medial temporal lobe. The hippocampus is one of the areas of the brain that's really essential for memory. And that's why you see short-term memory being one of the first symptoms. And then it spreads to the parietal lobe, which is more back here, uh, and, and some other areas of the brain. With CTE, we're finding that because of physics, basically the most vulnerable part of your brain, when you keep getting hit here, 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 is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, right about here. So you get these lesions here, and then they spread. And basically, like 20, 30 years into the disease, it then goes to that area of memory, the hippocampus, the medial temporal lobe, and the amygdala, which controls fight or flight, and you start getting really bizarre behaviors. So essentially, the atrophy pattern for CT is unique to other diseases, and it's it's medial frontal uh, or it's a frontal lobe involvement. It's a little bit of a right behind the forehead too, which is not always affected by other diseases, and then eventually it spreads to the medial temporal lobe and then everywhere. So an MRI can give you a very strong suggestion as to whether or not someone has CTE. Although we don't have, you know, we don't yet have statistical guidelines that we can give doctors to uh, let them know with certainty. But we published a year ago that when we got the MRIs of people who died uh, within a few years with CTE, we got the last MRIs, there was a unique pattern of atrophy relative to regular people. And that parietal lobe is mostly spared that it's attacked in Alzheimer's. Occipital lobe and parietal lobe, mostly spared. It's just frontal and temporal. So do you think players, I mean, should they try and get baselines of their MRI baselines and go back to five years later to see if their brain has got smaller? Or That's a really good question. So there's two ways to look at that. Uh, one is that, can you do anything about it? And the reason you get colon you know, the colonoscopies is because if you have cancer, you can treat it yep. and save your life. With CTE, if an MRI suggested you had it, there's nothing we can do for you right now. And so it's, if you had a certain pot of money to invest in figuring out CTE, monitoring people getting it wouldn't be where you necessarily spend that money because that, that's uh, very expensive to image everybody, especially when you can't do anything about it. So I would say, no, if you had money to spend, you would spend it on the research that will tell us how to definitively diagnose it and then so that we, we can figure out how to treat it. But monitoring is not a good use of, of the limited funds that we'd have to attack CTE. But I will also tell you that the problem with like something like an MRI is that the atrophy does not show up until very late in the disease. And one of the reasons why YMPS suggested I should talk to you is because PC knows about stuff that's happened to me over in the past. And, you know, I've been... You know, I've been knocked out many, many years ago, like 20, 30 years ago, where I, I, I ended up in hospital and vomiting and, you know, I, had, I was there for a couple of days. I was pretty sick, um, you know, just, just by virtue of that one thing, that one event. And I've been knocked out in the ring and uh, I've got counting, uh, uh, standing eights. I've had all that stuff and I've done a, like a million rounds of sparring over a long period of time, 40 years um, or more than 40 years. Uh, and... I often worry about this. I, I have no symptoms, by the way. Um, but, you know, I, I, I play rugby league too. So, uh, and I got knocked out playing rugby league too. And I, and I wonder what someone should do if they're worried. Or, or not, I'm not worried, but more 
interested and concerned about because I have responsibilities to people, et cetera, what are the things that people should do? Yeah, so just because yeah, one of the ways to frame this answer, which is an important, very important question, is you know what I what I've been doing for the last two days. So um I just flew in from Nebraska, middle of middle of nowhere, farm country in the US to visit my college roommate's widow. So my college college roommate, captain of the Harvard football team, 45 years old, uh, we learned last year had had and it was in the midst of a seven year spiral, anxiety and depression in his mid thirties uh, that turned into severe, the most severe alcoholism I've ever seen. And all of the old teammates did intervention, took him out of a flew to Boston, put him up, tried to get him all the medical help in the world. And he drank himself to death in December. And he had stage two CT. We just, I just informed his family yesterday. Um, so he, he, he and I played basically the same number of years. We went against each other. Um, he was like, again, when you voted captain at Harvard, you're like the smartest, you're the kindest, you care the most, you're the toughest. You know, he was super successful in his business career until his late thirties and then it all fell apart. Um, so, and, and, and so like the odds that I don't have, this is also very slim because we, we took the same number of hits and I, and the signs that I have on my MRIs and everything else point in one direction. So there's a difference in how your life will go with this disease. So the disease itself, especially at my age is going to kill me, but it can set me up for things that will kill me. Like, uh, addiction and risk-taking behaviors and uh, social networks falling apart, divorce, you know, all these, uh, you know, all these bad things tend to happen to these folks. Um, so what I'm focused on in my forties is the only thing I now control is my brain health going forward. And so I'm not like, I've basically given up drinking. I, you know, I, I exercise every day. I'm doing everything I can to stave off other ways my brain will die. Meaning vascular dementia from high blood pressure and eating bad and drinking and all these things. What are the other risk factors for bad things that can happen? But I'm also, as a neuroscientist, very conscientious that that ain't much. Like while it's good to do those things and it's really good for my day-to-day health, the disease is still going to spread. And at some point, I'm going to probably have, you know, such severe problems that, you know, it affects my family relationships, it affects my ability to work, it affects, you know, whatever. Who knows where this thing's going to go? So for, you know, you and I are in the same situation that we have way too many hits and we're at risk for this. And even if we don't have symptoms now, like I'm still mostly functional, you know, um, but I, I notice I'm not who I was. Uh, so while I'm trying to take care of my health, my bigger thing is I'm trying to get the scientific community to figure out real treatments for this thing. So like I've dedicated my life to this, you know, we just started a chapter of the foundation in Australia, partially to recruit your scientists to the fight. What we've learned is that everyone's in denial of this until we find it in people of their own, in their own country. And so 10 years ago, your doctors in Australia were saying, this CT thing is garbage because we don't have it in Australia. And the reason that we didn't have it in Australia is because no one was looking for it. And so we partnered with Dr. Michael Buckland and Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. We started a brain bank 
And lo and behold, 12 of the first 21 athletes we studied had it. And now we see these, you, you saw this burst of media of all these players coming forward when I was there uh, three weeks ago, like Mario Fennick and like, uh, I'm blanking on the other name. Jeff Fennick. Yeah, Jeff, you had James Graham's podcast yep. talking to everybody. We've got the book from uh, the rugby union player, blanking on who's a nice guy. Um, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And so um, we need to treat CTE as big as we treat Alzheimer's disease, all these other things. But CT is one that we can actually intervene on because you get it when you're in your teens or 20s and you have a lifetime to treat it. And so, you know, my advice to people who are concerned is go see a doctor, treat and snuff out every symptom you have. Don't, you know, you know exercise, diet, uh, don't do substances, don't drink. You know, do, do control what you can control, but also invest your anxiety and your energy into helping the scientists who are smart enough to figure out how to cure this, cure this, you know, get involved with the Concussion Legacy Foundation Australia. Like we are, uh, you know, we're, we, we got to get the global community fired up. You know, we got to take all the great things that made it, you know, that made us good athletes and target that energy at the problem that's facing us and our friends. It's a bit like solving motor neuron, like M&D. We've got to actually get more research yeah. done and you've got to have yeah. willing patients and people who are out there to put it up there. When you were, when you went to the RPA, Royal Prince Alfred, um, and you were obviously in the neurology department, um, did you did you end up at the Brain and Mind Centre in, in Camperdown, which is part of Royal yeah. Prince Alfred in Sydney University? And, uh, yes, they're uh, one of the partners in the brain bank. Great. Okay. So, they're, okay. So they're looking at these sorts of things because my mother uh, passed away with motor neuron disease, and I remember I took her there, and I was very impressed with that organisation. Um, as an organisation, the Brain and Mind Centre, and their ability to do research. Uh, it's all about research at the end of the day. What were the coaches and players who you talked to when you were? At RPA, what were they saying? I mean, what what was the sense you got from them? Are they worried? Are they, or are they still cavalier about the whole thing? Oh, we don't give a shit. We don't care about this stuff. Or were they starting to become very aware and conscious of these things? You know, the ones who show up are worried. You know, so when we did we did events in um, in, in Melbourne and Sydney, and we had athlete panels at both, and it's because there people are recognizing this matters. There, most people are still in denial. Most people are still on the sideline hoping it's not going to be them, but there are enough people now realizing what's happening and, and, and putting a face to this problem. You know, I remember, you know, uh, Colin Scott's was there, right? He's been very public that he's worried and he has all the symptoms and, um, you know, first Australian to play the NFL, like, and it, he probably does have it. You know, we can't know for sure. And, and, and God bless him up. We're going to do everything we can to help him. But this is, I mean, no, I mean people are realizing it, but we need we need more people to realize how they can help. Does, I'm thrilled James Graham is doing this wonderful podcast. He joined our board of directors, like he's ready to commit his you know life to this because again, I've always said if it's not going to be me, it's going to be my friends. I just never thought it would be this one friend who we thought was untouchable. Does it take a billion dollar lawsuit I, I, to get us to pay attention? Uh, well, so that's a great question. So the lawsuit question is an important one, right? So. If you think about, let's talk frankly about NRL, right? Right now, NRL is in, is in denial that repetitive head impacts cause CTE, right? They are telling not only their players and their coaches, but the public that what we know to be true is not true. 
while they're encouraging children to play tackle rugby and get this disease, right? That is, it, we are at the point now where the science is so apparent, and I'm happy to walk them through it. And we offered to meet with them, and they want to meet when I was there. That this denying that head impacts cause CT is like denying that smoking causes lung cancer, and that's a very expensive position to take when when juries and governments realize it's not true. I do think it'll take a lawsuit to get people. I hope it doesn't, but it could take a lawsuit to get people to admit the truth. Um. And, and, and the other part of the lawsuit issue is it's so expensive, as, as you know, to take care of somebody with a neurodegenerative disease. Somebody's, like, the, the cost of Amario Fennec not being able to work after 60 and being in a nursing home maybe eventually is, is in the hundreds of thousands to the millions of dollars. And that either is going to be borne by his family, the government, or potentially the, his former employer which which doing his job gave him this disease while his employer didn't tell him that was happening. And it, I agree. And it, 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 my gut feeling is, I mean, I, I don't know if you got this sense, but I think in Australia we still have this whole, and I see when I watch boxing matches all the time, how tough this guy was because he could take a thousand punches in the head. I mean, a good boxer and a good train, boxing trainer or it's just a student of boxing knows that it's not actually a good thing to be called tough in boxing because it generally means <laughs> exactly. it generally means that you've been hit, you get hit a lot, and and you get and, and you know what's interesting about and I and I'm just thinking about some of these people some of these behaviours you're talking about some of the individuals I knew who were very tough boxers actually behaved bizarrely bizarre behaviour, and everyone used to say about these particular individuals how tough they were. Because and they they actually weren't great boxers because they didn't know how to move the head out of the way, and they were copping punches a lot. And we have this thing in Australia about tough guys. You know, rugby league's a very tough game, and you know the reason we love the state of origin oh. game between New South Wales and uh, Queensland is because it sort of generates this whole tough guy thing going on. And uh, how many hits, which was measured by how many hits you can take, and could you still get back up and continue on? And I was only asked this time last week, I was at an event, um, I was a, a host at an event or not a host, I was a, a guest at an event, I had to speak and I was asked by the, the person who was interviewing me, do you think all these rules around head bins and et cetera have taken away from the old rugby league profile as being a, a tough man's game? And I actually answered it by saying, no, I think that's all bullshit, that stuff, um, and we sh- the head bin should be, is really important to me. Um, and it's funny, I could just sense by still, I don't think, I, th- I still th- sense that half the crowd agreed with me and half the crowd were uh, didn't agree with me because people still in this country love to see this tough guy profile. What are you, did you get that sense out here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what's fascinating about Australia is coming in as an American is that you, you guys are tough. Like your sports are insanely dangerous and painful, right? Like, like you, you love getting hit more than we do. And, and you have such a high percentage of Australian men playing these sports. Like, so there's no question, like I respect the toughness, but there's a limit to what we're learning. And again, I, I did the dumbest stuff in the world. Like we were having a laugh downstairs because we were trying, I'm trying to get chair shots to the head banned in this wrestling league. 
But like I used to let people hit me in the head with folding chairs. Wow. I used to let people hit me head with, with metal garbage cans. Like I thought it was cool. And it was just part of the show. And who cares if I got a cut or if I, you know, I have scars on my cheeks from people hitting me with objects and all these stupid things. Um, when you're older and you have some wisdom, you realize all that toughness stuff is bullshit because you're stuck in this broken body for the rest of your life. And someone else is making money off of you destroying your body. And you, we, so, yes, you have a – the safety measures we take is a cultural change. And you have a culture of toughness there that's bigger than probably any country I've been to. And so it's going to be hard, but it's going to take leaders and tough people who've proven they're tough to come forward and say there's a limit to what toughness is and there's no such thing as being tough with your brain. It's like you, you need your brain. Like we don't want to destroy families in the future. We don't want to leave widows, you know, and, and, and fatherless children because we were tough in our twenties and thirties. Like, Oh, what a prize that is. If you're not there to raise your kids. I want to thank you for this group. Like, cause, uh, and if there's anything I can do in relation to what you have kicked off or been involved in Australia or anywhere for that matter, um, I'd be very happy to help uh, those causes. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm someone who, <laughs> gets concerned about this stuff, but I'm actually someone who can go out and I would happily go out and say, I don't accept the toughness thing anything anymore. I think it's actually tougher to say no more and let's just control this and manage this in a nice proper way and just look at the sport for its athleticism and its uh, skills as opposed to how many hits you can take in the head, whether it's boxing or football, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm very happy to help. And I think what you're doing is uh, unfortunately – Sometimes we do things because we're the ones that are affected and that's what it takes for us to do something. Um, we're lucky, people listening to this, we're lucky to have someone like you to talk straight and to tell us as someone who is affected but actually someone who's gone and done something about it, went and got a neuroscience degree, has a PhD in this territory. So you can talk authorit- authoritatively. You're just not talking shit, you know what I mean? You are coming up with proper research based conclusions and deductions. So I really appreciate this conversation. I think it's been fantastic. I'm going to do a lot more work on this. Uh, where I can help, please let me know and I will certainly be in contact. I'm going to get in contact with James Graham and uh, probably I might even go up to the RPA or out to the RPA and uh, make contact with them and see if there's anything I can do in relation to this because I'm a big believer in this stuff. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm honoured. I'm, I'm inspired. I know how influential you are and um so, yes, we plan on working together on yeah, this. Yeah, please do. I'd love to invite you to be part of the CLF Australia team. We can talk about please. that. Count on visiting the Brain Bank yep. as soon as you're available. Dr. Buckland would love to have you and show you what's happening. Yep. Um, you know, I think he's currently studying the brain of Paul Green like this. Is there this is some serious stuff? Yeah, I'm even happy to donate and, my uh, brain. I know you can make a big difference. I mean, I'm happy to donate. Oh, thank I, you. I would. Great. And I know Jeff Fennex agreed to do it. So I'm happy to do something like that because if these things – allow for enduring benefits for future generations i'm all for it so and my brain ain't going to be any use to me once i'm gone so um so uh, i'm I'm only prepared to donate once i'm gone no uh, no, i'm honored i'm honored and 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 you're right just to sort of frame it again this isn't like an anti-sports message like what we're hoping is that people can benefit from sports without losing their brain to it and, and we have so many chances to do it. it. It's tweaking the rules. It's raising the age at which we start playing. It's not hitting in practice. It's all these, you know, tweaks to the game. We still have our cake and eat it too. We just, we have to 
be honest about it and we have to lift this veil of toughness for the sake of toughness. Let's evolve. That's probably the game. We got to yes. we got to evolve yeah. the game and we got to evolve as individuals and and culturally and societally let's evolve. We can still be tough but let's evolve past those sort of crude environments. Um, Chris, uh, Chris Nowinski, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. I've loved it. And um, thanks very much for talking to us too, by the way, because I know that your wife's caught up in, a, in the uh, hurricane down there in Florida at the moment, so I really appreciate it. And I hope everything's okay for her. Thank you very much, Mark. It's an honour. All the best to you. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Jonathan Leondis. This is a mentored podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.